Let's bow our heads with me once more as we go to Lord in prayer to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word feeds our souls, that it is indeed the bread of life. Thank you for caring to reveal yourself to us. We pray now that we would care that you have revealed yourself to us. Give us a great appetite for the bread of life. Would you say that Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So we pray, would you make the word of Christ clear so that we and others might fix our faith upon that word this morning and be saved by it. Watch over your word now, we pray, to perform it as you have promised to do. Speak to your people. May we listen. For Jesus' sake. Amen. There is a great effort today in the modern West to either deny or fix a or fix a hard truth of biblical reality. The truth so loudly denied today, the truth that we either want to say doesn't exist or we say it does exist but we have to fix that, is that life is not fair. Life is not fair. For many, the unfairness of this life is simply unacceptable. In fact, it seems as if a vocal few insist that taking the unfairness out of life should now be humanity's final shared project on our way to social perfection. Now let me say at the outset that there are many wrongs that people can and should put right. Guilty people should make restitution for stolen goods. Laws should be written and enforced so that people of all kinds are treated equally under them. To a certain extent, government was given to us by God as a way of curbing injustice, punishing wrong, rewarding good, providing an environment of law and order in which peace can thrive so that humanity can flourish. All of that is good. So there's a fairness to seek and find in this life. And it is often right and good for us to seek and find that fairness. But as we arrive at Ecclesiastes 9 this morning... If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 9, the painfully clear teaching of the Bible is that life is not fair. Ecclesiastes 9 rips the band-aid off and teaches us That life is not fair no matter how much we try to take the unfairness out of it. And yet, the unfairness of life should not ruin our enjoyment of life. And that's the point of the whole chapter. Life is not fair, but... 
we can and should still enjoy it. This life is not fair, but we can and should still enjoy it. And in particular, we see three unsolvable injustices. In Ecclesiastes 9, that nevertheless should not ruin our enjoyment of life before God as a gift from Him. So follow along with me in your own Bibles as I read out loud for us the entirety of Ecclesiastes 9. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Life is not fair, but we can and should Still enjoyment, joy it as a good gift from a good God who rules over all of it. Three insolvable justices, injustices in Ecclesiastes 9 that nevertheless should not ruin our enjoyment of life. These are just general injustices that you're going to find true of life. You're never going to 
fix them. First, first injustice. Good people die. Good people die. Nine, one through six. The same uncertain death awaits everybody, good and evil. Even the righteous and the wise and all their works are in God's hands, not their own hands, to be responded to and rewarded as God sees fit, not as man sees fit. The righteous depend on God for their blessing both in this life and the life to come, so even righteous people cannot tell just from the looks of it whether they'll be rewarded in this life for their righteousness or whether it will be said of their righteousness, no good deed goes unpunished. The world might love me or hate me for being righteous. I don't know. Both appear possible from the looks of things. More importantly, it is impossible to know just from the looks of things in this life whether God himself will love or hate me for my works, good and imperfect though they are. That's, I think, the sense of both are before him. Both possibilities, both eventualities present themselves as results of even the righteous person's life from the looks of things in this life. From our limited perspective, both are possible outcomes, even for the righteous person, for the wise person. We can't know the future. We are in God's hands, and God is invisible. Will righteousness be worth it in the end? Who knows if all we have to go on is how things work in this life. But these results are also in the hands of God. God is the one who controls ultimate outcomes of righteousness and wisdom. God is sovereign over how wisdom and righteousness turn out in the end. There is no, if you do this, the outcome will inevitably be that guarantee for you. It's all in the hands of God. But who else's hands would we want it all to be in? Hmm? Another person's hands? Your hands? Another God's hands? Impersonal fate? Karma? No, no. God, this God, the God of the Bible, is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness to those who fear Him, just like we heard in our call to worship this morning. It's that God in whose hands all the righteousness and wisdom of the wise are. This God is the only God whose hands are strong and kind enough to hold your future. But that encouragement, true and encouraging as it is, is not really the preacher's point here, is it, in Ecclesiastes 9? It's a wonderful truth, but it's not his point. In fact, in verse verse 2, it appears that in the end it makes little difference whether you were righteous or wicked since everyone dies all the same. That's his point. 
moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, socially responsible or socially irresponsible, whether you recycle or not, radical individualist or compassionate conservative, promise keeper or not, everyone dies. You will die. No matter how good you are. The human mortality rate is 100% in verse 3. And that fact irks us. We don't like that. But it applies to all that is done under the sun. Every single action is subject to this uncertainty of outcome for the righteous, except for the certainty that both the righteous and the wicked will die no matter how they live. Death and taxes. It's certain. Now that's bad. That's disillusioning. We don't like that about life. But that's life. Charles Bridges, old Puritan pastor from the 1800s, noted, if Ahab was slain in battle, so was Josiah. Ahab was Israel's worst king. Josiah was Judea's greatest king. And both of them were slain in battle. Man, the first time I read about how Josiah died and understood, I was like, wait a minute, what? He was the great reformer. He's the the best one of these guys I've read about this whole time. And you're telling me that he dies in battle? That's what the Bible's telling you. The best king died like the worst king. Life's unfair. What in the world? Death is no respecter of persons, no matter how good a person you are. And that fact of life is illustrated in Jesus' own death. The only sinless person ever to live was crucified between two enemies of the state. How unfair is that? It's the worst unfairness that has ever happened in the history of humanity. That's how unfair it is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the lips of any sinner, that question would be easily answered. Well, of course, it's because you sinned. You forsook me in your sin, now I'm forsaking you. But not in Jesus' case. Jesus was sinlessly righteous. So why did God forsake him? Jesus died, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might be brought to God by him. He was the clean, the righteous, the good, who offered up his own body as the clean sacrifice to suffer God's righteous wrath in our place for our sins to satisfy God's justice so that sinners like us could be forgiven and reconciled to the God we had offended. The God who holds our future in his holy hands. But for now, from all appearances, just going on how life works, this life is absurd because in the end, It ends in death for both the righteous and the wicked. So 
So this life is absurd because it ends in death, no matter how righteous you were, yet life, such as it is, is still better than death. The storyline of fallen humanity fails to provide compelling significance for us. You just look at how life goes, and it's not real encouraging most of the time. Look there in the middle of verse 3. Here he's, he's summing up. Here's the story of humanity. This is us from beginning to end. In the middle of verse 3. You ready? The hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Okay. <laughs> and that's part of the biblical worldview. People are jerks and then they die. It seems like that's what it's saying. People are evil and then they die. People are bad and then they die. That's the narrative? That's the narrative. You can look at life like that, even from a biblical perspective. And you see it all the time. People live for sin and self and then they die. Some die early. Soccer star just died at 32 years old. The son of a famous football star just died of a drug overdose in his late 20s. A gang fight in a Honduran women's prison left 46 gang members dead just last week. You ever think about that when you read that kind of headline? I do. I think, what? So that was it. That was how those people lived their lives. And then they died. That's reality. You know what, what question comes to my mind is, what, what did those lives mean? What did it mean for those people to live and die like that? And that's, that's a pretty disillusioning thought. They lived to themselves and their sins, and they died. And that life narrative, even if it is far less gruesome than what happened in that Honduran prison, is multiplied billions of times over in human history. They're born. Their hearts are fully set to do evil. They do evil for a lifetime, whether it's gang violence or consumer selfishness and immorality of the real housewives of Atlanta. And then they die. That seems senseless. There's an absurdity to that. I can't get my mind around how, why. What, what is going on in this world that that's how so many people live and die? What can such things mean for the meaning of life? And are we really much better? Knowing the evil desires of our own hearts? Yeah, that's not all, because in verse 4 he says that even though that narrative is deeply disappointing, disillusioning, bad, the living are still better off than the dead because there's still hope for the living. Like, even though life works like that, it's better than being dead. And you might be like, well, how do you figure? <laughs> A living dog, though inferior to a lion, is better than a dead lion because the lion is dead and the dog is still alive. I mean, a lion is a, 
I'd rather be a lion than a dog, wouldn't you? If, like, if you're not a human, if you're going to be an animal, and the choice is lion or dog, I'm like, I'm lion, apex predator, sign me up. Dog, scavenger, bad, no good, I don't like it. But lion, yeah, I could, I could roll with being a lion. But it's better to be a dead, a, a living dog than a dead lion. I guess that's true too. But why? How is living better than dying if living is like this? Well, at least the living know they were, they're going to die, whereas the dead don't know anything at all. That's nobody's life verse. Right? Like, you get to that, like, God, what in the world am I supposed to do with that verse? Well, at least I know I'm dying. Yeah, that's the answer I was looking for. That solves my problem with Ecclesiastes. Thanks, God. Thank you. I know now. I'm going to die. That's why I should live. No, I don't. That's not as satisfying as we want it to be. I mean, if that's how life is, then is life really all that much better than death? But I think what he probably means there is that the living use their own impending death to motivate their action and accelerate their pace of life so that they get all their living in before they die because they know they're going to die. I think that's the sense of that observation. At least you know you're going to die, your life is going to end, and so you better get on with living while you can. To know you will die is to get on with living. Because once you die, it's too late to live. All the love, all the hate, all the zeal, intensity, zest, desire, all that ends at death. The hope for the living then is that the knowledge of their impending death will move them to make the most of their lives while they have the chance. We live while we can because we know we will die, even though we cannot know when or how we will die. And even that not knowing when or how we will die further motivates us to make the most of our lives while we can. But our world is double-minded about all this stuff. It seeks the fountain of youth while embracing a culture of death. Think about it. We seek immortality in the beauty craze, the fitness fads, the skin creams, the essential oils, the gym memberships, the false hope of plastic surgery. And don't get me wrong, it's not morally wrong to wear makeup. It's not morally wrong to work out, watch what you eat, steward your body well. Reconstructive surgeries are not sinful vanity in every sense, in every case. But the modern West chases those things, doesn't it? As if we can find immortality in them. As if we can put off death and thinking about death indefinitely, while at the very same time we categorize abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia as health care, and we glorify violence in movies and sports. Oh, I see how it is. Immortality for me, but not for thee. We're trying to save our own lives 
often at the expense of other people's lives. But the human mortality rate has held at a stubborn 100% for all of human history. This human narrative makes us want to give up on life at some times, even as we reach for an imagined immortality. The preacher here is saying, we have to find a way to enjoy life truly and righteously, even though death is coming for the righteous and the wicked alike, even though we cannot be 100% certain of our own future, even though the only seeming advantage for the living is that we know we'll die because in knowing that, we get busy living while we can. So first injustice that can't ruin your enjoyment of this life is good people die. Second injustice that you can't let ruin your enjoyment of life is that deserving people lose in verses 11 and 12. Deserving people lose. The fastest person doesn't always win the race. The best army or warrior doesn't always win the battle. The most shrewd businessman doesn't always get the bonus. The smartest guy in the room doesn't always develop the best connections or get the credit. A true meritocracy is a mirage. Some of you have experienced this at work. How many times have you been passed over for that promotion? Even though you've been way more loyal, you've got more experience, you're better at your job than the other guy who got the promotion. Talent and giftedness do not always carry the day. Hard work and dedication don't always pay off. Whether in sport, war, vocation, wealth, politics, life is not fair. The best team doesn't always win. The most deserving person doesn't always get the job. Talent and preparation often go unrewarded because time and accident happen to everyone. We are not in control. We don't choose or control the times we live in. We don't choose or control the circumstances around us or even the accidents that happen to us. We do have moral agency. Yes, we can initiate things. We can make things happen. But that's a far cry from being in control. The translation chance there is not a nod to anything that could be outside God's sovereignty. It's rather how things appear to us. Accidents of history happen to us without our permission or foresight. So little are we in control that the preacher compares us in verse 12 to fish and birds. That's humbling. You're swimming along with the current and little do you know it, But there's a fisherman's net coming down over you five minutes from now, and you have no idea. You're flying free as a bird, and suddenly you fly right into a snare with no warning, no clue, no time to prepare. And this happens literally to the best of us every day. The swift, the strong, the wise, the intelligent are suddenly overcome by the accidents of life. The elite athlete suffers an untimely injury. 
The elite warrior walks into sabotage. The elite employee, the technical maestro, gets passed over for promotion because someone else has an inside track. Smartest guy in the room gets his patent stolen by the company that wants to use it, and he can't monetize his own invention. Happens all the time. So in a sense, life is not what you make it. You don't create your own reality. You don't create your own aptitudes. Your IQ, your gender, your race, your time of birth, your parentage. You don't control who it is that's competing with you in life. All that is a given, whether you like it or not. You didn't choose to be conceived or to be born. You didn't choose whether you would live at birth or not. You didn't choose who your parents would be or whether you'd be biologically male or female. You didn't choose whether you'd have a chronic physical ailment or a blood disorder. And most sobering of all, you will not choose the day you die. It will come to you against your will. Maybe today in a car accident, next month in a plane crash, next year in a freak home repair accident, or five years from now as a result of random violence or a common disease. In all these senses, life is not what you make of it. That's what the Bible is telling you. You can be the most talented, smartest, strongest person, and life doesn't work out for you. All these things are givens of time and providence and from a human perspective, accident. And ironically, because life is not what you make of it in these ways, it is wise to make something of your life while you still can. So get to living because even though life is not completely what you make of it, what we do with the hand that we're dealt in life is up to us. You can't control all those things. You can only control how you respond to them. We can't sit around complaining that life's not fair and that our, our entry-level job doesn't pay a living wage and that Richie Rich across town gets all the breaks and I get all the problems, even though I'm smarter and more talented than Richie Rich is. Life's not fair, and no one can take the unfairness out of it, not you, your parents, your boss, your connections, your government, life is not equitable. Life doesn't always reward the most worthy people. And we got to get over that. Don't quit. Don't let it seal your joy. Don't let it make you give up. Try, because in these ways, life is what you make of it. Enjoy and use all that God has given you instead of complaining about all that He has not given you. Maximize your life as you're able precisely because you are not in control of everything and you don't know how everything will turn out. Who knows? Maybe in maximizing your unfair lot in life, you come out better off than you could have possibly imagined. So Kohelet's counsel here is not bitter resignation. It's not forlorn self-pity. Oh man, I was the strongest guy. I was the smartest guy in the room. I was the best educated I knew how to do that job better than that guy who got the job, and now I don't have the job. The preacher's not saying, well, lick your wounds. He's not saying that. 
He's not saying, ah, oh, Kesara, sara, whatever it will be, will be. I was the best candidate, but they picked someone else, so what's the use? I could get a job, but it's not a living wage, so what's the use? No, no, no. The Council of Ecclesiastes is exactly the opposite. You're not in control. You don't know how it will all turn out. You're not going to live forever, so quit pouting and get to living before you die. There's an old Dave Matthews song that emphasizes this to a certain degree. He wakes up in the morning, does his teeth, bite to eat, he's rolling, never changes a thing, week ends, week begins. She thinks, we look at each other wondering what the other's thinking, but we never say a thing, and these crimes between us grow deeper. Take these chances. Place them in a box until a quieter time lights out you up and down. You thought you were going to have a quieter time to deal with this stuff. And death came before that quieter time came. You're taking a big chance complaining about how life is, waiting for an ideal moment, waiting for everything to become fair in order for you to step out and make something of this life that God has given you. In the meantime, you're ruining your most important relationships because you envy what God has not given you, which makes you ungrateful for the people and things that He has given you. And you will find that if you wait much longer... If you take these chances and place them in a box until a quieter time, even a non-Christian can get something right. If you keep sitting on the sidelines until everything is as perfect as you expect it to be and the chance of success is 100%, by then the lights will already be fading to black. It will be too late and the quieter time will be in your tomb. This life doesn't last forever. So get to living for the glory of God. Third, third injustice that we should not let disillusion us is that wise people are snubbed. Wise people are snubbed. Verses 13 to 18, it's unclear where the preacher is getting this example, but he seems to have seen it in real life somewhere. A great king attacks a tiny little city. Poor wise man in the city uses his wisdom to get the great king to back down. Yet once the city is safe again, nobody remembers the poor wise man or gives him any credit for saving the town. No one builds a statue of him in his honor at the city gate. No one creates a city holiday in his name. He goes unappreciated, uncelebrated, unremembered, unrewarded by the very townspeople he saved. Thanks a lot. I mean, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Even so, the preacher says in verse 16, the wisdom... To avoid a war is still better than the strength that wins a war, even if that wisdom of of obscure people goes unnoticed and unheeded by the very people that that it saved. Wisdom is not always appreciated, even by those who benefit from it the most. And still, it's worth it to be wise. So the moral of that story in verse 16 is, don't give up on being wise just because people don't give you credit for being as wise as you are, even when it benefits them, even more than it benefits you. That's life. Crowds very often do not know what's good for them. Even when it's staring them in the face, even when wisdom just saved their bacon. 
So calibrate your expectations for how others respond to your wisdom at work, at home, at school, in your neighborhood. But in verse 17, there's another moral to that story. Quiet wisdom is better than loud strength. Quiet wisdom heard by quiet, thoughtful listeners is better than the loud harpings of a populist leader talking to a foolish audience that cannot hold their applause. The wisest leaders are not always the ones with the most gravitas. They're not always the ones with the loudest voice. They're not always the ones yelling. They're not always the ones whipping up their bass. They're not always the smoothest public speakers. In verse 18, another moral still. Wisdom to avoid war is better than strength to win war even when it goes unsung. So being wise is worth it, and yet it still only takes a single sinner like this great warrior to ruin all the good done by the wisdom of the wise. So be wise and speak wisdom, but don't be surprised when some fool comes along and wrecks it all in one stroke. And even if your wisdom does prevail, don't be surprised when people snub you for it later. Is that unfair? It is unfair. Is that life? Yes, it is. But that just goes to show that a true meritocracy doesn't exist anywhere. So, what do we do in a world where good people die, deserving people lose, and wise people get snubbed? The writer says, you go and enjoy life anyway. That's what he says. Verses 7 to 10. Enjoy life anyway. In verse 7, it's like the preacher knows you're sitting here reading his stuff, and it's almost like he knows the effect that reading this stuff has on you, right? Sometimes you read Ecclesiastes, and you look up, and you just kind of want to stare a hole in the floor, like, hmm. Uh, I don't know if I want to keep reading this. I don't like what he's saying, but I don't know how to respond to it. I can't prove him wrong, but I don't want him to be right. And he knows you're sitting there thinking like that, staring a hole into your carpet. And so he says, hey, snap out of it. Go. Get up. Quit staring a hole in your floor. Go. Stop thinking about all this. Go get a nice dinner with some people you love. Quit with the vexed philosopher act and go enjoy what God's given you to enjoy. After all, God's already approved enjoying the fruits of your labors. Now, sinner, that is not a blank check to get drunk or eat yourself sick or engage in endless retail therapy or to sin with impunity. But it is to remember a couple things. For starters, God created you and this world good. He intends you to be fruitful and multiply with your spouse, to fill the earth and subdue it with your children. Creation is good, and it is the good habitat that God created for us as His human creatures. 
So don't live life as if you're not supposed to enjoy it. Just because life is messed up. What's more, if you have the good things of life and you're able to enjoy them to the glory of God, that enjoyment is also a good gift from God to you, Ecclesiastes 5.19. In other words, creation is good because God himself is good and he wants you to experience him and his creation as good, even though creation is not as good as it was before we sinned. In verse 8, life is for living. So, don't go around like a sullen cynic, moping around all the time. Act like you believe that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so there's nothing you can eat that can make your heart unclean. Food and drink are God's good gifts to us. Now, be careful of other people's consciences. Don't sin against your own, but live like you believe. Psalm 104, 14 and 15 is still true. Even in a fallen world, you cause God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, even in a fallen world. And plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Even though the world has fallen, God's still doing all that for you and me. That's sweet. That's good. That's kind. That's generous. That's something to be grateful for. That's something to celebrate together. And I cannot quote 1 Timothy 4, 3-5 through 5 enough in a fitness-obsessed culture. Don't be one of those who requires abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Would you eat a donut every once in a while? Amen. It's the only amen I got the whole sermon. Eat a donut every once in a while. He says, wear white, the color of celebration and happiness. Stop moping around. Take care of yourself. Take a shower, for goodness sake. Put some product in your hair. That's in Scripture, verse 8. Let oil be on your head. At least put some lotion up there. Act like you care. Act like you enjoy life. Act like you're accepting God's goodness to your humanity. Shave, bro. (laughs) Look like you want to be here with us. Even if you had a hard week. Act like you want to enjoy the goodness of life with us, even though you can't explain the badness of it. We can't explain the badness either. Not all of it. Don't let the unfairness of life torment and torture you so. Don't make the unfairness of life make you unpleasant to be around. Stop problematizing everything. That's not a grateful way to live before the God who gave you life. I know you've been through hard stuff. So have I. So have many of us. But God is still good. Life is still good. And you're still alive to live it. So live before it's too late. Stop with all the regret. 
Because soon enough you're going to regret all the time you wasted regretting stuff. And enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. It's a great... <laughs> I feel like the preacher's just kind of taking you by the lapel here, right? And, hey, man, would you wake up and enjoy life with your wife all the days of your vain life? I know your life's vain, but you got a wife. Go enjoy her. I want to put that verse on my refrigerator because I forget it so often. Brother, do you enjoy life with your wife or are you too easily embittered by life's unfairness to you? Are you the kind of husband that your wife can enjoy her life with or are you always complaining about the bad hand that you got dealt and asking your wife to complain with you? Don't do that. And wife, are you the kind of woman your husband wants to enjoy life with? Or are you too busy lamenting how unfair life has been to you? So busy that your husband can't enjoy the goodness of God to you in the remaining life that you have. Even so, even this enjoyment itself has limits to it. All the days of your vain life he has given you joy, Go love your wife, enjoy life with your wife all the days of your vain life that he has given you. Now, French philosophers rarely get things right, but I think Jacques Allol is on the right track here. Listen to what he says. So this happiness with your wife does not eliminate the vanity of your life. Even when you're happy with her, even when you're enjoying your marriage... This happiness doesn't eliminate the vanity of your life. It neither constitutes the meaning of life, don't idolize your marriage, nor enables a person to escape from himself. No, this happiness occurs within the circle of vanity. So during these days of your inescapable vanity, absurdity, senselessness, confusion, you do well to profit from the happiness that love gives. God approves of this so long as we do not take it for an absolute certainty or for eternity. If you try to escape from vanity, from senselessness, from absurdity, through love or happiness, you're going to find a trap that way. Otherwise, it's not only good, but advised and even a commandment. Long story short, enjoy your marriage to its fullest, but don't expect your marriage to take the senselessness and absurdity and unfairness out of your life. Or else that's going to ruin your marriage. And your wife's not going to be able to live with you very well that way either. Because you're expecting too much from her. She can't take the vanity out of this life. She can just take the edge off. And in verse 10... Work hard at whatever you do, because among people in coffins, unemployment is 100%. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Mm. <laughs> He's not pulling a bunch of punches here, is he? He's shooting straight. Hey, man, why don't you work a little harder? Because you're not going to be able to work anymore in the grave. 
There's no overtime in the grave. There's no bonus in the grave. There's no raise waiting for you in the grave. You better get to it. Young man, young woman, preteen, teen, do not be lazy. You're going to regret that. Life is for living, and it doesn't last forever. You're strong now, but you're going to run out of that strength. Trust me, it doesn't feel like you're ever going to run out of strength right now, does it? You're 15, 16, 18, 21, 25. You just feel like, man, I'm going to go forever. feel strong as an ox. I could work. I could play. I can, I can do anything. Yeah, until you're 45 or 50, and then you're going to be like, hmm, I feel like it's the end of the third quarter now. So get to it while you can. Work, brother. That's why you were created. That's what you were created to do before sin ever even entered the world. Work is not sin. Work is not the result of sin. Why did God put Adam in the garden? To work it and to keep it. So you work. Care about the people and things around you. Take responsibility. Create. Develop. Build. Maintain. Protect. Serve. Learn. Grow. Read. Write. Compute. Solve. Do whatever you do, man. Do whatever you do. And do it to the glory of God. And pick up other people's slack while you're doing it. And don't act like that's unfair. Because that's how you honor God. And that's how you love your brother. That's how you love your neighbor. And do it like you mean it. Because you're not going to be doing anything when you're six feet under. I tell my kids sometimes when we're walking somewhere public... Walk with purpose. Man, I'm not walking around just to walk around. We're getting somewhere. Would you act like you want to get there? I can't stand people who drive like they're not going anywhere. People walking around in a mall like they're not they're walking aimlessly. They're just kind of veering off course. I try to pass them, and then they, they, they dart into my passing lane. I can't even pass them. Talk about senseless absurdity. It's maddening. Just lumbering around. Some people do their work like that. You ever seen somebody work like that? As if they're just lumbering along with a job under their arm, but they're not really doing anything with it, just piddling around with it. They're working at a painfully slow pace, kind of babying it along. Like, if they do their job slow enough, the job itself will just eventually quit expecting them to do it. They're washing a dish. It's like they expect the dish to look back at them and say, ah, forget it. I'm clean enough. Just put me away. I mean, just looking at people work like that makes you lethargic yourself, doesn't it? Live and work like you got somewhere to be. Get after it. Work like you're running out of time. Because the truth is, you are running out of time. Jesus said as much of his own human life. We heard it this morning in John 9. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. Even Jesus was not exempt from this. He said in John 4, 34, as a result, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Remember that? He's talking to the woman at the well, sends the guys to get food into town. They come back. He says, I have food that you don't even know about. Like, ah, I didn't know there was a 7-Eleven around here. And this is what he says. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Hey, man, I'm doing great. I'm fine. I just got re-energized by this evangelistic conversation with this Gentile woman, Samaritan. 
I've been walking all this time. I sit down at a well. All I want is something to drink. I could use a snack. She needs eternal life. I'm giving it to her. You guys come back with food. And I'm like, no, I'm good. My food is to do this. This is what I feed on. I feed on work. I feed on ministry. I feed on giving myself away to others and trusting that God will replenish me even when I feel depleted by it. That's faith. That's serving. That's not having a chip on your shoulder in ministry. Hmm? Jesus viewed work and ministry as energizing and good for him and strengthening to him. And he was a man of a sorrow, sorrows and acquainted with grief at the same time. Jesus, of all people, could have used life's unfairness to him as an excuse not to work. What's the use? They're just going to crucify me. Christ did not think of work like that or ministry, and neither should you, Christian. What's the use? They're just going to complain. What's the use? They're just going to tell me what I'm not doing. Ah, did Jesus pay attention to those kind of feelings and thoughts? What if he had? Then your salvation wouldn't have gotten done. The Apostle Paul told Christians, Colossians 3, to 24, Servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Is that how you do your job? Or are you only going to do it if you get credit from your boss and the people who have the power over your salary and your promotions? See, this is how a Christian lives. He, serve, he lives to serve the Lord Christ in whatever he's doing because Christ has earned him an eternal inheritance in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, and you know that's unfair because you didn't earn it. So what are you complaining about? What do you really have to complain about? in the unfairness of life. Of course, we know something Kohelet did not know. We know someone Kohelet did not know. The preacher knew that everyone dies. He did not know that Jesus would die, the righteous for the unrighteous, in our place for our sins, and then rise from the dead to open eternal life beyond the grave to all who will ever repent of their sins and trust in Him. Jesus' death changes the way we think about death, which in turn changes the way we think about life. Looking at the way this world works, it was hard for Kohelet to know whether God would love him or hate him in the end. Who knows? Because good people and bad people died just the same. But now that this same God has sent Jesus to live a sinless life in our place, to suffer and die under God's wrath as our substitute sacrifice, how can we not know that God loves us when we trust in Jesus? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies in Christ who is to condemn. And therefore, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, if you are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus' sacrifice and righteousness credited to you, then you already know that it is love for you from God. And knowing that the great issue of your eternal destiny is sealed in Christ, you are free to live in Christ and for Christ without fear and without resentment. You can enjoy this life in obedience to Christ knowing that your condemnation by God has already been executed on the cross of Christ. You trust in Christ that he frees you to live this life without having to prove that the race should have gone to you as the swift one. you got nothing left to prove. Who cares if the riches didn't go to you as the smart one? You have the riches in favor of God's mercy to you in Christ. Who cares the favor didn't go to you as the one with the most knowledge? You know Jesus. And Jesus knows you. So what, so what that you didn't get the credit that your wisdom deserved? God has already credited you with the righteousness of his divine and sinless son, Jesus Christ. That's all the credit you need. So what that life is not fair in all of these ways? Life was not fair to Jesus. It was not fair that Jesus, the good man par excellence, died under the wrath and condemnation of God that we deserved. And that was unfair. It's not fair that still today, Jesus' wisdom goes unrecognized by so many millions of souls. Charles Bridges put it so eloquently, how many are living as if there had been no deliverance wrought or no need of deliverance. Jesus was the wise man who saved the town and who's loving him? Hmm? Why is it this church chock full three times a week or more with tons of people who are recognizing the wisdom of Jesus? Because life was unfair to Jesus, that's why. Because nobody recognized his wisdom. Yet it is also not fair that you, Christian, got all of his righteousness credited to your account simply by faith when you earned none of it. And that changes how you live and how you respond to life's unfairness. It frees you to live and work and enjoy the work and blessings of this life for what they are, nothing less and nothing more. Because you know this life will soon end and the way you live this life for Christ matters for eternity with him in the life to come. You know it to be right that Christ will hold you accountable for how you loved him back. For how you responded to his love for you when you were still his enemy. So take the advice of the old Puritan songwriter Horatius Bonar. Make haste, O man, 
to do whatever must be done. Thou hast no time to lose and sloth. Thy day will soon be gone. Make haste, O man, to live. Up then with speed and work. Fling ease and self away. This is no time for thee to sleep. Up, watch and work and pray. Make haste, O man, to live. Make haste, O man, to live. Thy time is almost o'er. Oh, sleep not, dream not, but arise. The judge is at the door. Make haste, O man, to live. Let's pray. Well, Father, we confess that we have often been outdone by the unfairness of life to us or to others. We have often let it discourage us, dismay us, make us feel entitled to better treatment because we thought we deserved better. So we pray, would you recalibrate our hearts by reminding us of the unfairness of life to Jesus and the unfairness that we have benefited eternally by being credited with his righteousness and his sacrifice when we earn none of that and deserve none of it. Well, it would help that to be the great leveler of our attitude towards this fallen life. And so may we walk and live and respond and initiate with a joy that is appropriate to those who know that the greatest unfairness in this life has worked in our favor And all the other unfairnesses our Savior Jesus will work out when he comes back to make all things new. So may we unlearn all the error that we have assumed. May we learn afresh that the gospel, the righteousness of Christ credited to our account is the great leveler of our attitude, the great reality check that we as Christians need. And so help us to honor Jesus in all of our work, in all of our enjoyment, in all of our responsibility, in all of our taking up of other people's slack. May we rejoice and remember that Jesus has given us all things. For his sake we pray. Amen.